In a lot of ways, uh, this video, this short clip this week, captivated my attention. I'll tell you why. It communicates, without using any words, what I believe to be uh, the angst of our age. Is it not true that technology and all that came with it, the information age, the internet, social media, brought with it great promise of connecting us as human beings? And yet we find ourselves in a spot in 2024 where perhaps we're, we have the greatest potential for being connected, and yet we find ourselves incredibly lonely. There's great potential for connection, and yet there's such separation, and I, I feel this in my own home, and I, I think it, it, it frustrates my kids at times because I know they feel the angst, uh, particularly when I talk to them about their devices, but, but I feel this when we're in the same room and we're all on phones and it's like we are literally in proximity to one another, but no one's talking to anybody else. Does anybody else feel that tension? This is our age, sitting back to back with our phones. Closer than, you know, people normally sit and yet disconnected. Together but separate, linked but alone. In John chapter one, there's an interesting uh, word that's used that's one that, uh, that sort of has become synonymous with uh, a lot of the biblical narrative for me, one that had made a, a pretty significant impact on my life. John chapter one, verse one says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Guys, remember this? Let me read the rest of it to you. He was with God in the beginning and all things were created through him and apart from him nothing was created that has been created and in him was life and that life was the light of men. And that light shines in the darkness and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Verse one again, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Here's the thing that I think in my heart brings such angst. Our God is a God, right, who is all about intimacy. I don't mean in sort of the way that we pervert that word. I mean like intimacy, connectedness, deep connectedness. In fact, in that very verse, there's a word with, and that word, P-R-O-S in the Greek, pros, means to face towards someone, face to face. I don't know how often you do that, but it's, it's pretty intimate to face towards someone. It's not lost on me that there's an app on many of our phones called FaceTime where we have the opportunity to be face-to-face -face with people all over the world. And sometimes we use it and it's incredibly helpful, right? It's not the technology that's the problem. At the end of the day, the intimacy issues have less to do with our technology and more to do with us, more to do with you and me and how we use it, right? There's opportunity there to be face-to-face -face in the same way that God's face-to-face. -face. We just don't use it that way real often. It's funny that our social media has made us far less social. Not lost on me. This theme you see also in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter one, verse 26, it says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Okay, let God make us 
uh, or let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now here's the thing, the Hebrew people were not polytheistic. They weren't the Greeks, they didn't believe in a pantheon, they believed in a uh, monotheistic view of God, which means there's one God, which is confusing if you read this passage and you don't know that our one God is three people, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who exist in eternal intimacy. Right? This passage is the beginning of our understanding of the triune nature of God. So here's the thing this morning. The world was created from intimacy and people were created for intimacy, not just with one another. They were created for intimacy with God. They were created for intimacy with one another. They were created for intimacy with God's world, with creation itself. But then as many of you know, the fall happens in Genesis chapter three, and I'd love for us to turn there together. Our final passage uh, will be Genesis chapter four, but I want us to set up here in verse eight to start to get where we're going. Verse eight says, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. This is after they've sinned. So the Lord God called out to the man and said, where are you? As we've discussed in previous weeks, this question isn't a question about proximity, it's a question about intimacy, right? God knows where they are, God's God. The issue is that there's a broken relationship because they've sinned, right? They're hiding from him. And he said, I heard you in the garden, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Remember in Genesis 2, it just told us they were naked and they felt no shame, but suddenly they feel shame. Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you to, to not eat from? In verse 12, the man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Right, and we laugh in that moment so we don't cry. Verse 13 says, so the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And so God is a God of intimacy who made us for intimacy, for connection in this life. And yet at the fall, in our sin, first intimacy with God is broken to pieces, which then turns into struggles with intimacy internally. They started to feel shame. They started to struggle to know who they were, right? Their identity. Intimacy with one another fell apart. Intimacy with creation fell apart. And here in Genesis 3, we're introduced to separation or alienation and the outcome and consequences thereof. I just would remind you this morning, as we read the book of Genesis together, it's so significant, important to remember, not to get caught on, on um, little details that the original authors weren't intending us to get caught and focused and fixated on. It's important to recognize that the, the author of Genesis is trying to help us understand humanity itself, our experience as human beings in this life in regards to our relationship with God and our relationships with one another. And that's what's happening in our passage today as we're introduced to separation and the outcome thereof. Um, many years ago, uh, C.S. Lewis, who many of you know in the room, wrote a book that is not called Mere Christianity or the Chronicles of Narnia. So it's like, well, what was it, right? The book uh, that I'm referring to specifically is called The Great Divorce. And The Great Divorce is a book that he wrote that is sort of a story that tells about what heaven and hell are like, 
okay? But before you go too far into that, it's very much uh, an allegory, so don't like draw too much from it if you go and read it, okay? That's my disclaimer for you. I love this book dearly, and here's why. The description of hell in this book is so um, enlightening to me because it's described this way. In hell, in the, in the great divorce, basically you have a bus stop that if you get on the bus and take the bus, you can go to heaven. If you so choose to go to put your faith in Jesus, you can go to heaven or you can choose to stay in hell. Again, be, care, be careful on your theology with this book, okay? Don't follow it too literally, but it's got beautiful things for us to say. In hell, where most of the people are staying, here are the conditions. Hell is a place where you can have whatever you want. So in hell, my will be done is the way, okay? But people can't help but fight and eventually move further and further away from each other, okay? So more separation, more isolation from God and from each other. That's sort of the norm in hell, okay? So here's a little quote from it, and again, this. The words are a little bit old, let me explain as I go. Uh, here's a quote, it says, it seems the deuce of a town. I, I assume that at some point in human history, back in the 1940s, the word deuce meant like it's really great, okay? I don't know, but it's a deuce of a town, all right? Seems the deuce of a town. He's describing this suburb-like place that is hell. Now, I'm not saying the suburbs are hell because I love them, but in the particular book, that's how it's described, okay? It seems the deuce of a town. I volunteered and that's what I can't understand. The parts of it that I saw were so empty. Was there once a much larger population here? So this, the protagonist is looking at hell and going like, why didn't anybody live in these houses? They're all over the place. Seems like a really beautiful place. Here's what goes on after that. Not at all, said the neighbor. The trouble is they're so quarrelsome. As soon as anyone arrives, he settles in some street. And before he's been there for 24 hours, he quarrels with his neighbor. And before the week is over, he's quarreled so badly that he decides to move. Okay, a little bit later in the same passage. And what about the earlier arrivals? I mean, there must be people who came from earth to your town even longer ago. He says, that's right, there are. They've been moving on and on, getting further apart. They're so far off by now that they could never think of them of coming to the bus stop at all, astronomical distances away. It goes on to say that some of these characters like Napoleon and Genghis Khan and others, you have to have a telescope to see their home because they've moved so far away from everyone else. And here's what Lewis is trying to get at as he tells this story. Hell is eternal separation from God, we believe that. Hell is eternal separation from God. But hell in this life, the life that we live today in this world, is living separate from your creator. It's living separate from his intentions and his plans and his purpose, his love, his goodness and care. If you wanna experience hell on earth, that's the first place you go. Live separate from your maker. He knows how to live your life and the moment you separate, you're living on your own. Same way in the book, my will be done, right? But I can I tell you something else? Hell in this life is experienced in separation from one another. I think that's another thing we draw from his book. Right, hell on earth is hate and what comes of hate and it's fruit. It's abuse and injustice and greed and exploitation and selfishness and I could go on and on and on, of course, right? 
But if you want hell in this life, that's how you get there, right? It's separation from God and it's separation from one another. It's a lack of intimacy with God and no intimacy with one another. That's how you'll experience it to its full extent. And so our passage that we're in today, I believe takes the ideas that we've been talking through to start this morning and it just shows them in vivid, vivid form uh, in Genesis chapter four. So I wanna ask you, would you please turn there with, with me this morning? And I think in vibrant color, we'll see th these ideas worked out before us. We're gonna start in verse one. Genesis chapter four. Sorry, Genesis is a big book. Verse one, it says, the man was intimate with his wife Eve. That is, Adam was intimate with his wife Eve and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I've had a male child with the Lord's help. But she also gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, time Cain presented some of the Lord's produce, land's produce, as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also presented an offering, and some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious, and why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what's right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's guardian? Then he said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out from the ground. So now you are cursed, alienated from the ground uh, that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give, its yield, uh, give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. But Cain answered the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Since you are banishing me today from the face of the earth, I must hide from his presence or from your presence to become a restless wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord replied to him, in that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. Then Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of our Lord. You know, when I was growing up, this particular passage, passage and passages like it were used to remind me as a child that I should always wear my best clothes to church. Anybody live that life? It, can I just tell you, it feels a little strange that a story about a brother killing his brother was used to encourage me to wear nice clothes to church. That's a little strange. The idea is, and this is generally the the interpretation that you get when you read this particular passage that you always bring your best to the Lord, right? So you put on your Sunday best when you go to church, right? That was sort of the, the line that was given to me. And there's certainly some truth to the fact that as you walk through the Old Testament, bringing your first fruits to the Lord is significant. But 
As I read this week, I want you to know that a lot of the scholars who are out there, that's not where they go first. Like, yes, there is something to be said there for bringing your best. But some of the scholars out there would say, how do we know that his was better? How do we know that Cain's offering, or that Abel's offering was better than Cain's? Right? And it may very well have been. But the thing that I think is significant for us, regardless of whether or not you think he brought the best offering, is that the, what happens after that moment, after the moment when God uh, accepts one and rejects the other, or regards one and disregards the other, that information and the rest of that story is extraordinarily important for you and for me both. And in some ways, it is the genesis of a discussion, a larger discussion in scripture about loving your neighbor, right? A giant theme that runs throughout the entirety of the Bible, right? We don't know with certainty that Abel brought an inferior offering. He might have. We moralize this part of the story oftentimes villainizing Cain because in my opinion, we wanna move on from this story because it's painful, right? We just wanna be like, okay, that's how you're a good person, that's how you're a bad person, great, let's move on with it. But can I just tell you this? Perhaps the more important reality that we must come to terms with in this passage is that God is free. Like, what do I, what do you mean, Kirk? God is free, and for whatever reason, he chooses to bless Abel instead of Cain. Sometimes I think as human beings, we try to move away from the tension that we feel when it comes to God because it makes us uncomfortable. But can I just tell you, especially in the early chapters of Genesis, um, in, in the ancient writings specifically, there's a lot there where human beings are asking questions, God, why are you doing this? This doesn't make sense to me. Okay, like the oldest book that we have in the Bible, the book of Job, okay, this book, the entire book is about God basically making a deal with the devil to allow the devil to make Job's life miserable, miserable, right? And throughout that time, Job, like he's aces, he's doing the thing, right? He, he refuses to dishonor the Lord, but it comes to a point where he's like, God, what the heck is going on? Why is all this happening? And the last chapters of the book of Job is God saying, look, you don't get to decide what's right and wrong. I'm God and you're not, you're a human being. I made this world, I know how it works and I will do what I want to do because I'm free to do it because I'm God. Now that's kinda hard to deal with, am I right? Another example, in the, in later on in the book of Genesis, God tells Abraham to take his son up a mountain and to kill him as a sacrifice to him. Anybody ever struggled with that passage? Yeah, you better believe it. They get up the mountain and you know, you know the story. God offers this ram as a, a replacement basically for Isaac. You know, it's like one of the interpretations you could take from that is, well, God was just trying to see if Abram or Abraham was faithful, right? And that's probably true to some degree. But he was also trying to teach Abraham, I'm not like the gods of all the people around you who actually do require people to bring their children and sacrifice them to me, okay? And so in our story today, God makes a decision that's a little confounding. It's like, God, why? Okay, so Cain brought it first. Why wouldn't you honor that one? Well, I don't know, right? He thought of the idea before Abel did. It feels like Abel's just following behind him, right? That seems like it's gotta mean something. I don't know. 
I don't know, God acted in his own volition. He did what he thought was right. And sometimes in life, we have to be okay with that. Is that a not, real, a not a real tension that we live with? Why did God do this? Am I the only one who's ever asked that? Why, why am I experiencing this in my life? Why am I walking through this? Why does that terrible person over there have a bazillion dollars and I'm scraping by over here doing the right thing? Right? We ask these questions all the time. We don't know. God, God's not always real forthright with why he does what he does. But in this particular instance, I think the application may have to do more with how we respond to the tensions of life and temptation and less in making sure that you wear nice clothes to church. Right, in the face of what seems unfair, sin is crouching at the door. Sin is literally licking its chops and Cain is faced with a choice. And I think we live with that same kind of tension in our lives when things happen around us that make us go, why is it this way? Why is life like this? Why do I feel slighted? We have opportunity to honor God and to love our neighbor or to do what we wanna do in those moments to seek vindication for what's gone on. So it's true for us as well. We are constantly presented with the tensions of a fallen world and an enemy who would love nothing more than to entice us away from our maker's intentions. See, like Cain, we have a terrifying choice, sin and separation or obedience and connection, okay? The enemy seeks to entice us away from intimacy with our maker and our brother. So looking back at our passage, it's as if God is setting up Cain to ask questions like this. How are you gonna remain connected when forces work feverishly against it? Okay, another question. What are you gonna do when someone else gets something that you think you deserve? Another one. What are you gonna do when life feels unfair? What are you gonna do when life feels unjust? What are you gonna do? How are you gonna respond? What is your action? And then this is the part that I think is fascinating. It's as if he goes, okay, Cain, you make a decision. You decide. Also note, I think this is important. God leans in with Cain in this moment. It's like, look, I know that your brother got the, the blessing that you wanted. I'm telling you, if you'll choose right in this moment in regards to your brother, you'll be accepted. You won't be separate, you'll be accepted. I promise. And then he leaves it to him. This is your responsibility in life. Make the right choice here, you can choose. But know that sin is sitting at the door. It's waiting for you to, to make a mistake and it wants you, desperately wants you to make the wrong call. Okay, we go on in the story and we see what happens. Um, and it's pretty bad. So let's look at some language that's in this passage that I think teaches us something that's actually really helpful um, in our approach to what we do with the passage, okay? That was pretty glum. Let me give you some stuff that's, that's helpful to us, okay? If you look at verse seven with me, let's do a little Bible study. Everybody get your Bible out. If you have it, open it. If it's on your phone, open it. Just don't go to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever, as soon as you're done reading it. Do your best. Okay, so let's look at this together. Some interesting things that I think happened in this passage that are instructive to us. The first is this, verse seven. If you do what's right, right? This is after 
uh, we find that Cain is very angry, okay? Verse seven, if you do what's right, won't you be accepted? This is God talking. But if you do not do what's right, sin is crouching at the door. It's desirous for you, listen, but you must rule over it. If you uh, are a Bible marker, if you feel comfortable with that, uh, underline the word rule there, okay? The next verse, Cain's response is, I'll kill my brother. So he hears God's warning, and then immediately he takes his brother out into a field and kills him. So it's like, he didn't pass that test, buddy. That wasn't very good. It was really quick, too. Verse nine, the murder's been committed. It says, then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? These are important words. His response, I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's guardian? Or another way, other translations uh, translate it, am I my brother's keeper? Okay, underline that word too. Okay, so in some ways, this story is a microcosm of Genesis one through three, right? It's like Genesis one through three, creation and the fall worked out in real time, okay? In another way, this is a story that is, um, a ma- that, that tells a story of the macrocosm of life, like everything that we experience as human beings in relationships, okay, you see that? So here's what I found that I think is interesting here. And I'm gonna have to take you back to get you here, so everybody hang with me for a second, all right? There's two words that stand out to me as I walk through the passage. Verse seven, the word rule stands out to me, and verse nine, the word guardian or keeper stands out to me. And you know why? Let's take a step back. This is garden language and we've just come out of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Let me remind you real quick. When God creates the heavens and the earth, he puts uh, Adam and Eve on the earth, and he says, be fruitful and multiply, rule and subdue the earth. Okay, so that word rule is used there in Genesis chapter one. You skip over to Genesis chapter two, and again, God's talking to Adam and Eve. He places them in the garden. These are your responsibilities. I want you to garden this garden. What I want you to do here is to cultivate and keep. And so if you're really like digging down deep into it, the same word there for guardian, am I my brother's guardian, is the same word in Genesis chapter two that specific, it's the word shamar in Hebrew, and it means to protect or to keep or to stand watch over. So don't miss this. I believe that the author of Genesis is asking us to look back at the stories using this garden language where God gave Adam and Eve this assignment to tend the garden. They have responsibilities to rule, subdue, cultivate, and keep in this world. We talked a few weeks ago about what that looks like in our lives. Now he's there speaking with Cain, and this is what I think he's saying. Cain, is your brother in, or actually, I'm sorry, I think this is what Cain is asking, excuse me. Cain is asking, is my brother in my garden? He says, am I my brother's keeper? In essence, he's saying, is he my responsibility? Am I responsible to tend that garden? And the answer with a resounding, uh, in, in resounding fashion is yes. That's what the passage is trying to get to. Trying to teach us, look, when you look out on the world, 
when you see the whole of humanity, you may think to yourself, well, me, my family, my relationship with God, my close friends, that's who is in my garden. Those are the people I'm responsible for. But the question is, what about the guy that you're so angry at, the guy that you perceive as an enemy because of the way that life has turned out and it feels unfair? Is that person in your garden? Are they your responsibility? And the answer is, you better believe it. This is why Jesus says things in the New Testament like, love your enemies, right? And bless those who curse you because Jesus recognized coming from this background that that's what God intends. That when we look out on the world, we don't just see us and them, that we see us, right? We are the human race and when we look out, we see each other as our responsibility. And you're like, that's a lot of responsibility. Yeah, it is, I hear you. That's why we all have to do it together, right? It's pretty amazing, right, what the passage is pushing us towards here. I think it's pretty powerful. And I think that God has something for us there. So the question this morning is this. Where is there separation around you? If in life you have a garden and your role, not just with your family and not just with your friends, but in your world around you, is to rule and subdue, cultivate and keep, right? All these relationships, all these people around you. Question is, do your habits with smartphones, you're like, that was a weird turn. (laughs) Do your habits with smartphones increase connection or increase separation? Do they promote or dissolve intimacy in the world? Okay, these these are the questions that you have to get to if these are the, This is the conversation. Next one, does your communication or leadership style increase connection or increase separation? Do they promote or dissolve intimacy? Can I keep going? Does the speed of your life increase connection or separation? Does it promote or dissolve intimacy? Does your speech increase connection or separation? Does it promote or dissolve intimacy? Do your political opinions, ooh, increase or decrease intimacy around you. And more specifically, it's not wrong to have the opinion, but more specifically, well maybe sometimes it is, but (laughs) more specifically, the way that you articulate and use your opinions, does it increase or decrease intimacy and connectivity? See, when we're all connected, when we all matter, when we're all each other's brothers, right? Suddenly these questions, really start to take on a whole new level of meaning. They do, right? The way that we interact with the world, that's really ultimately what this is getting at. Like, does the way that I live increase or decrease intimacy in this world? Does it increase or decrease connection in, in this world? I was reminded this week of, um, of, uh, of this passage in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23 through 24. It says, Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. Can I tell you why that stood out to me? Like in that particular passage, also I think in Romans 14, they're working through the same thing. It's basically like, am I allowed to eat this or not eat this? So you say I'm free to eat whatever I I wanna eat now, but can I really? And the response is, well, like what effect does it have on somebody else? That's the answer. 
It's the, the question, this is so fascinating. It's not, are you free to do it? Right, if, that, if that's the ultimate deal, that's totally selfish. Your response to it is completely selfish. Right, it's completely driven my, my way, right? But the, the question is not, can I or can I not do it? The question is, what effect does it have on somebody else? Why? Because we are our brother's keeper. That's why. Right, Jesus was serious about this. John chapter 15, Jesus is talking to his disciples. It's the very end of his life before he goes to the cross. These are the last things he's talking to them about. He's at the Lord's Supper. They're having discussion. What's he say? I want you to abide in me, right? And I'll abide in you. It's basically connect your life to me like your life depends on it. And then just a few chapters later, John chapter 17, what's he do? Jesus turns around and he prays one last prayer for the disciples. And you know what that prayer is? I want you to be one in the same way that I am one with the Father. It all comes full circle. That's his last prayer. I want you to be one. I want you to be united. I want you to be connected to one another. Now here's the question. Why would Jesus pray that last? Was it because it's super easy to do or because it's exceptionally important and really hard? Right, it's exceptionally important and really, really difficult. Here's the thing. All of us every day are living with the tension that pull that we feel, that sin crouching at the door, that when things don't go our way, that we choose in a way that we choose violence rather than peace, right? That we choose the way of Cain. And can I just tell you, and please don't take this out of context, can I just tell you it's always easier to kill Abel than to deal with the tension and love him instead. We are entering a year in our country, as you know, where tensions are unbelievably high. I don't care what side of the row you sit on, it is so much easier to drop that angry response on Twitter than it is to find a whimsical way to communicate love and disagreement at the same time, is it not? It's always easier. That solution is always easier, and I think that's why God's coming alongside Cain in this moment and saying, look, the tension's real to not love one another. It's easier to choose this path. But you will be accepted if you do the right thing here, and you can. And I just love this. I just wanna point it out to you because some of you feel helpless here. Notice back in that passage, I wanna make sure I read it to you directly. I don't wanna miss this. Um, Whenever God is talking to, to Cain in that moment, he said, sin's crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. He's giving him permission and direction to directly attack that sin sitting at the door. Can I just tell you this? Um, I, think it's, um, I think it's Ephesians chapter six. Let me, I wanna read this to y'all real quick just so that you, yeah, I did mark it, good. Let me just read this to you so we just kind of get that full circle look. It says, um, finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of who? The devil. For our struggle's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, keep up the full armor of God so you may be able to resist in the evil day and have prepared everything to take your stand. God intends for us not, that's right, amen, that's right. 
God's intention in for us in those moments when we feel that tension, right? That, that, that desire to separate, that desire to attack rather than seek peace or hate instead of love. God's desire for us is that we put on the full armor in that moment. And number one, we remember that our battle is not against that person, right? There's another party involved who's crouched at the door, who wants us to sin, who wants war, right? We remember that party and we attack that party rather than the one in front of us, amen? You guys, you guys following me this morning? Because at the end of the day, we want connection with the person in front of us and we want separation from the one who's attacking us and crouching at the door. And yet so many of us so often choose connection with the one who's crouched at our door and, um, and separation from the person who's sitting in front of us. We gotta get it, we gotta turn the, turn the corner on that. We gotta get it right. And so this morning, the, the, the ultimate question is, who in your life do you feel this tension with? What group of people do you feel this tension with? And again, it's not that you don't have standards. It's not that there's not biblical truth that we uphold. That's absolutely a piece of the pie. That's why there's tension though. Because you come face to face with someone who believes something radically different than you do and you've gotta figure out a way to love them in spite of the fact that you ferociously disagree with what they believe or do with their life. But God would have us fight through that tension to love them anyway. One more thing and then we gotta go. Um, as you make your way towards the, the end of that passage in Genesis chapter four, let me just show you uh, one last thing. Verse 10 says, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries up to me from the ground. So now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer in the earth. But Cain answered the Lord, my punishment's too great to bear. Since you are banishing me today from the face of the earth, I must hide from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord replied to him, in this case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. Then Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So significant in this story to recognize there's a theme running through Genesis. It begins in Genesis chapter three when Adam and Eve sin. And what do they do? They feel shame and they cover themselves with leaves. And in a very real way, this is a very temporary covering. It'll fall apart as they go about their life, dry out. It's not a long-term deal. And so in spite of their sin, in spite of the consequences of their sin, God offers them grace. And he fashions for them clothes made out of leather that will last longer. So in spite of their sin, God offers grace. Again, in this passage today, justice in this passage is that God would just kill Cain. He murdered his brother and he has to die. And yet God steps in and again he offers grace. When he knows that Cain will be murdered in the far off country, right? What's he do? He puts a mark on him and that mark is a mark of grace that allows him to live in a foreign land. There's not, it's not that there aren't consequences to his actions, it's just that he gets grace when he deserves justice. This theme is exceptionally important 
because as you know, we blow it every day when it comes to loving our neighbor. We blow it every day when it comes to loving the Lord. And praise be to God that he made a way for us to experience grace instead of justice in the face of our shortcomings, right? That when we blow it, when we make the big mistake, that God's response isn't to give us justice immediately, not that there aren't consequences, but to offer us grace, and that's what he did through Jesus. One of the most beautiful parts of this story is the way it points forward to a time when God would send his son into the world and he would lay down his life to take the punishment we deserve for what we've done to get justice for God by taking it on himself so that we might have the life that he deserved, so that we might go free, that we might receive grace. And so today, I just wanna encourage you, even as we seek to be people who bring about love and, uh, and, and fight separation in this life, let us be people who remember that God has made a way for us to experience his grace. And it's important because we spend eternity with him, but it's also important because of this. Let me tell you one more thing. It's important because as we are connected to the vine, going back to John 15, as we are connected to God, Right, that's what ultimately this is about. We are reconciled in our relationship to God through Jesus' work on the cross. As we are connected to God, he is working in us the capacity to connect with others in a way that looks like him. We need this. We need the Lord to show us what it looks like to fight separation and, and, and go after connectivity with all our hearts. We need God to teach us what intimacy looks like, not the perverted version, but a very real version in our world. What is intimacy with friends and with spouses and with kids and enemies and how do we do this right? Well, we need him for it. And so we dive into a right relationship with him and as we're connected to him, he changes us and makes us more like Jesus. All right. And so here's the thing, if you want to do this well, Right, the work of creating a, a world that's more loving and a world that's less filled with hate, it begins with a right relationship with God. That's what I'm trying to get at. And so if we could, everybody across the room, I wanna give you an opportunity if you're here today and you have an unreconciled relationship with God, a broken relationship with God, I wanna give you a chance today to turn to him and just say, God, I've sinned, you know that. I need a right relationship with you and I'm putting my trust in Jesus today to save me because I want to live a reconciled life with you so that I might live a reconciled life with the people around me as well. Let's pray. God, we come to you today and I just wanna especially pray for people who are in this room today who don't know what it's like to have a right relationship with you. Lord, today I pray by the power of your spirit that that you would draw them to yourself. As you do in scripture, that you'd invite them into your family. What an incredible thought that God loves you so much that he invites you, even in your rebellion, to come be a part of his family. If that's you, if you're out there today and today is the day you're like, I need to put my faith in Jesus for the first time. I need to become a Christian. I need a reconciled relationship with God. I wanna give you a chance to do that now. I just wanna encourage you in this moment to reach out to him and say, God, 
I've sinned against you and against others, and I'm sorry. And God, I want a reconciled relationship with you. I want a right relationship with you. I want to be connected to you every day. And so today, I'm trusting Jesus, trusting you, trusting the work he did on the cross to pay the punishment for my sin and give me a life with you. Maybe you would say to God, God, I, would, I wanna be in your family. I wanna be one of your kids. I want a right relationship with you. Would you save me today? If there's anybody in the room today, heads down, eyes closed, don't look around, please. If you're, just, if you're here and you'd say, Kirk, today I, I put my faith in Jesus just a moment ago, but today I recognize I need a right relationship with God. I have a broken relationship with him. I need to be reconciled to him. Today's the day I put my faith in him. Would you just raise your hand so I can see it? See you right there, that's awesome. Just raise it high. I see you way in the back, awesome. Keep it raised. Awesome, oh, I see all over there. All right, you can put those down and pray for you. Father, I just wanna pray for my brothers and sisters today who put their faith in you. God, give them the courage to wake up tomorrow and remember that you love them, you saved them, and you've called them to love one another and to love you. We love you, Lord. Thank you this morning that you brought salvation to this house. We're so grateful, Lord. Thank you for your reconciliation. Help us to be reconcilers as we go about our week. Your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us. And if you have any questions about what you just heard, we'd love to talk with you. You can get connected at hnw.org about what we believe or how to join a small group or follow us on social media as well. Thank you so much for joining us and we'd love to see you soon.